Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. Enjoy today's message. May you experience the presence of our Father and may you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. So this morning we are going to do chapter 2, not the whole one, but verses 1 to 7 of First Timothy, we are walking through the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, where Paul writes to the church and to these specific men in charge of these new churches and telling them how the church should function and act. And very important, when we come to chapter 2, that we don't forget chapter 1. Amen. Many times we tend to do that and we forget that these books of the Bible were written as a single paper and we inserted verse numbers and chapters so that we can guide ourselves a bit easier through that and make mental notes and references to where we are and what we are working through. But they read it as a whole. And many times when we read different parts of Scripture or different chapters of Scripture, we kind of forget the chapter before or the chapter that comes after. And yes, sometimes it does stand quite on its own and it's working through some things, but very important that we understand Scripture in its context as a whole, specifically today as we look at this prayer for all people. We very many times when we work through this passage, we forget the two realities that should happen and that Paul is addressing here. The first one is a work that should happen in here and the second is a work that should happen out there. And both these realities is needed when we work through this chapter. You'll see that in the first chapter, Paul commanded Timothy to stay at Ephesus, to charge certain people not to teach any different doctrines. And he said that the aim of this charge... The goal is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And that kind of sums up the purpose of the church and whatever we want to do in life is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And interestingly enough, the most loving thing or one of the loving things that Paul says Timothy can do is to remove what is false so that we can instill and impart what is true. One of the most loving things we can do for one another is to address false teachings in our lives, false beliefs. Amen so that the truth can flourish and grow. And Paul is saying that address these false teachers, and these false teachings range from lawlessness on the one hand to legalism on the other, a whole range of them. And Paul says, in light of these false teachings, we are called to proclaim and defend the truth of the gospel. And then Paul illustrates and explains this gospel truth in his own life, the power of the gospel to save and to change. And then as we saw last week, he encourages Timothy, fight the good fight. In other words, this proclamation of truth will not be easy. Why? Because human beings in general are not receptive to truth. And we are part of those human beings. And like we said many times as the church, we get confused as to what we need to do and what, we, what desires we should have in those that we actually have. Just because we know that we should love God most doesn't mean that's automatically true always. Amen. Just because we know we should be receptive to truth doesn't mean that that's automatically the truth always. Just because we know something doesn't make it true. And he says, fight the good fight. Proclaim and defend the gospel, holding to faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And he names two guys, Arminius and Alexander, whom he's handed over to Satan that they might learn not to blaspheme. Strong words. Some uncomfortable words many times for some of us. But Paul says this is love. 
And so he gave this in general charge, fight the good fight, defend the gospel, proclaim the gospel, live the gospel in light of all of these false teachings. And now Paul is gonna get practical. He's gonna say, that's the in general charge, but now let's look at how that works practically. If you wanna know, okay, but where do I start? What do I do? What does this mean for us? And we're gonna see a whole list of things. From how, what, that, what does that mean for women? To proclaim the gospel? to demonstrate the gospel? How does that look for men to proclaim and demonstrate the gospel? How does that look when we gather together corporately? How does that look for widows? How does that look for married people? How does that look for children? This is how it looks like. And that's where we're picking up the story and important to remember. How do we apply this? We cannot forget chapter one. Because if we do, we forget the work that needs to happen inside, not just outside. So let's read through it and see what we can learn. 1 Timothy 2 from verse one to seven. First of all then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For, this one, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. A very compact and condensed passage of scripture that we can spend a lot of time on. But the goal this morning is to get to the heart of the matter and to get practical around this. And one of the things that kind of gives us an indication of a bit of a context of this so that we don't miss the heart of it is verse seven. Paul is praying, saying that we should pray for all people. He lists a couple of people. He gives the reason for that. He says God's desires for all men to be saved. And then he says, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Something that's not done through prayer, but by speaking to certain people. And there in the brackets, I am telling the truth, I'm not lying. It's kind of an interesting one. You don't see that everywhere. It's kind of interesting that Paul would insert this here, thinking, hey, Paul, I thought you always did this. Tell the truth and not lying. But the context here, and important for us to understand that there were some exclusivists in the church in Ephesus. And one of the great struggles of the early church was this, that they thought that the gospel was not extended to all people. Salvation was not available for all people. But they like to make factions and say, no, that it's for elite group of people specifically the Jews that came to faith. This cannot be for the Gentiles, or if it is for the Gentiles, they have to become Jews first. You know, they have to obey all of the law. Not the moral one that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, but the ceremonial one and the food laws. They need to be Jew to be saved. And Paul is saying, no, that's not how it works. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. This gospel is really for everyone. I was appointed as apostle and a preacher to them. And Paul is saying, God needed to teach me this as well because he didn't like the Gentiles, Paul. He persecuted the church. He, always, he also believed that it was for the Jew only, that this God only saves the Jew. And God needed to teach this to Paul as well. So much so that it's interesting that Paul becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. And Peter, the fisherman, becomes the apostle to the Jews. I mean, humanly speaking, God not only teaching them something, but also showing us that he gives the power and appoints whomever he wants to his service. Because humanly speaking, we would have thought, Paul, 
the Pharisee that could recite most of the Old Testament by heart would be a good guy to send to the Jews. Amen? Like he knows this. He understands this. He can reason from the Old Testament why Jesus is the Christ. Send him to them. And God's like, I'm going to send Peter the fisherman. That's not educated. That doesn't know the scriptures that well. I'm going to send him to these Pharisees that know the scriptures very well. And you can kind of just imagine Peter's face. Like really. Thinking about, if you think in our day we have theological debates and people like relying on wisdom, you must imagine him in his position. You want me to go to them. I don't know these things as well as Paul. Don't you want to send him rather? But no. He goes to the Jews and Paul goes to the Gentiles. He's saying there's no nationality for salvation. There's no gender. No specific class. No education. The gospel is available for all. And in light of the universality of the gospel, we read this passage. So let's begin from verse 1 and work through them. It's Paul writing, First of all then, I urge that supplication, prayers and intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people. First of all then, I urge that supplication, prayer, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people. And Paul is just listing the scope of prayer, what we pray for. The supplication for all men. We pray to God on behalf of all men to supply what is needed to live godly lives. We pray that His will be done, His kingdom come for all men. We intercede, stand in the gap on behalf of all men for God. And we thank God for His will and His purpose for all men. Amen? That's what we should do. And here Paul is listing the scope and also the purpose of prayer. And again, twofold. A work in here and a work out there. And very important that we don't miss the work in here. I'm going to say it a couple of times, but it's important for us to see this in this passage. Because if we understand it wrong, we are going to apply it wrong. Amen? Important that we understand what Paul is busy saying here. And then he says in the beginning, first of all, then. Remember what I just said. It's important that we remember chapter 1. We can't forget chapter 1. Paul is saying, in light of the duty of the church to proclaim and defend the truth of the gospel, in light of us waging the good warfare, in light of us holding fast to faith and a good conscience, first of all, pray. If you want to fight the good fight, if you want to continue in this thing called the Christian life, if you want to hold fast to a good conscience, first of all then, pray. That's a work in here. That's before it gets out there. Isn't it interesting? Why would praying for all people cause us to hold on to a good conscience? Isn't that interesting? And the test is twofold. Remember, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. What's the best way we can love the most people? Prayer. By praying for them. And whenever we act unlovingly, we suppress a good conscience. Jesus says the whole of the law and the prophets can be summed up in this. Love God, love people. Whenever we act unlovingly, we are suppressing a good conscience. We are acting against God's will. And again, very important, something that we saw last week, that this love is not defined by our own feelings. We don't define love but what I experience to be loving, what I feel to be loving. No, it's what God says is loving. Last week we read about these two people that were handed over to Satan, excommunicated from the church. And many times and for many of us that doesn't feel very loving. Amen? And there's all kinds of questions, but how will they and what if and how then? doesn't matter. 
God says that's loving. For the church, why? Because a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. If there's wrong teaching, wrong practices in the church and we allow that, it's not good for us as a whole. And also it's not good for them because we are helping them reject a good conscience. We are confirming their behavior. We are confirming the things that they teach. We are confirming that that lifestyle, we shouldn't do that as a church. It doesn't help. Hold fast to a good conscience. It's not good for us. It's not good for them. Very important that this love and how we love people is according to God's truth, not our feelings. Amen. And God says it's very loving to pray for all people. And the way that this really tests the genuineness of our love for others is firstly, this act of love that we can do for most people is not seen by those people. It's seen by God alone. So many times we want to do a lot of other things but might be for the wrong reasons, but God says this one thing, if you constantly pray for other people, He is the one that mostly sees this. Yes, when we pray at church, we see one another praying, although we do it with our eyes closed. We know we're there. Outside at intercession, on Mondays at intercession, at small group, we pray and we can see we are praying, but we pray for the town, we pray for the lost, we pray for other people and they don't see us praying for them. God sees that we are doing this act of love for others. Like John Piper says, you don't even need to get out of the bed to do this. It's also one of the acts of love that takes the least effort. Amen. It's the easiest way to love other people. is to pray for them. It's the easiest way. And then we can conclude, if it's difficult to do what is easiest, it would be unlikely that we would do what is hard when it comes to loving other people well. Are you with me? It would be difficult to do that. And in this book, Paul addresses a lot of issues that we face. As men and women, as congregation in all, he says the men struggle with anger and quarreling. They struggle to lead well in love. The women struggle when it comes to modesty, submission, gossip. He addresses these things. And he says the church in general, there's division, there's envy, there's slander. And he says we many times struggle to deal with those things and that fruits many times there because we neglect to do first things first. Because we neglect to do this, what is easiest, we struggle to do what is hard. And because the work is not done in us, and we'll see that in a moment, that prayer doesn't only do something there, but also in here. That is very important when it comes to dealing with these issues. Specifically when it comes to division and things in the church, it'd be difficult to be divisive towards those that we're constantly praying for. In love, amen. Because we can also just go and complain with God. We can also go and, just speaking to God doesn't mean it's prayer necessarily. Are you with me? We can also go and complain there. It's also true. But it's a better place to complain if you really want to. Please go and do it there. And so Paul is speaking about these things. Scope, the purpose of prayer. And very important here, this doesn't only mean that if we pray, but also for who we pray and what we pray for. Now the good old question, if we ask this, that if all of our prayers are answered right now, would our world be a better place or would the world be a better place? Because in the book of James it says that we pray and we do not receive because we pray wrongly to spend on our own desires and passions. We are selfish in our prayers. And to ask us that and to answer that, let's take a minute and just answer and reflect that. What would happen if all of your prayers are answered right now? And some of us might conclude nothing because 
There is no prayer life. There's nothing that I'm asking for. There's nothing that I'm pressing into God for. Not for me, not for other people. Nothing would change. And like we said a couple of times, it's okay if it's that way today. It's not okay if it's that way next week also. Amen? It's okay to be confronted with truth, but then receive grace so that that can bring about change. Amen? And some of us might conclude, yes, only my life would be better. I would have more things, more provision, more health, whatever the case might be. If all my prayers get answered, my life, or at least my circle around me, would benefit from it. Or would the world be a better place? Very important for us to answer that. And after Paul says this, but first of all, if you want to fight this good fight, if you want to keep the faith, hold fast to a good conscience, pray for all people, he singles out a couple of people. It says here in verse 2, For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So again, he lists a group of people and also gives us the purpose of praying for these people. Not just kings and all who are in high positions, but for all people, kings and all who are in high positions. We can't forget the all people when we go to verse 2 here. But there's obviously a reason why Paul singles out this group of people. And the first one is in light of the context of this chapter, the universality of the gospel and the exclusiveness of some, it's very difficult to pray for those you don't like. Are you with me? It's very difficult to pray for those you don't like. And people in Isda and in Aude don't like those in high positions very often. Are you with me? And the first time Israel asked for a king, God said, it will be this way. You are not going to like this. They are going to oppress you. They are going to rule over you. There's going to be taxes and all those kinds of things. You're not going to like this. It's not going to go well. Human beings struggle with selfishness because of sin. And if you place a single person in authority, believe me, it's going to be tough. But we wanted that. Why? Because we're also sinful. But the rest of the nations already had kings, so we would have had kings today. That's not the point. But we don't like them very often. It's difficult. There's oppression. There's injustice. And it's difficult to act lovingly towards these people. And we'll see that in a moment. Because many times we do pray for them, but it's not a very loving prayer. Lord, remove them. Lord, bring them down. Expose them. You know, there's all those types of prayers. And it's also good to expose wrongdoings. God says, yes, we should pursue that. We should do that. We should pray for that. But that shouldn't be the main focus of our prayers. Amen. A loving prayer for all people. It's difficult. And the second reason also is that many times we believe that those in authority, because it's not just kings, but all who are in high positions, don't need prayer. We many times think that people appointed to lead other people, maybe at your workplace or whatever the case might be, that they are doing quite well, they don't need that much prayer. We are all human beings, we all need prayer. We need grace for God to come and work on our behalf, in us and through us. Amen. And then Paul gives this reason. He says that, for this reason, this will be the outflow of it. This will be the outcome of this prayer for all people, for kings and those in high positions. It says, that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And it's very important that we understand that this word speaks about something around us, yes. There's circumstances changing. That's the first word, peaceful. can also be translated tranquil. speaks about something that's external around us. But that word quiet, godly, and dignified, that's a work in here. That's not a work out there. And we'll look at that in just a moment. So Paul is saying that if we complain less about our leaders and if we pray more for them, there might be 
the result of peacefulness in the life, in our lives around us. Stop complaining, start praying. And we're going to look at that in a moment, what the complaining part does in contrast to what God actually wants us to do and wants us to be busy with. Pray for those in high positions. Pray for all people. Specifically the kings in high positions. Why? Because they have the power to make life around us more peaceful, more tranquil. Pray for them. And again, we might say, but they're not saved. And while the main goal of this is for salvation, we'll look at that in just a moment, we need to acknowledge that God can also work through those who are not saved. He can work in and through them to accomplish his will. He uses the king of Assyria that's not saved. He uses King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon that's not saved to accomplish his will. In Daniel 4 from verse 36 to 38, it's Nebuchadnezzar coming back to reason. He lost his reason. He walked around eating grass for a couple of years. And there he says, at the end when he looked up to heaven, his reason returned to him and he glorified the Most High. And he says that his rule and reign is everlasting and his kingdom goes from generation to generation. The whole earth is accounted as nothing before him and he does what he pleases in the hosts of heaven and in the inhabitants of the earth. Nobody can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is sovereign and almighty. He works through the unbelievers and the believers. Nobody can say to him, what have you done? Nobody can stay his hand. The host of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. God works mightily. So God says, stop complaining about people. Start praying for people so that God can work in and through them on the behalf of others. But then to conclude that this is only for circumstances around us to change and that would lead to quiet lives, godly lives, dignified lives that would stand against the truth of Scripture. It would be to say that Jesus came to change the circumstances of whom the church gets the most benefit. That's not what Scripture says. Amen? It says that in the midst of chaos and confusion, in the midst of persecution, we can lead quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. This is Paul busy writing under house arrest, under the emperor that would have him executed. This is not him saying that circumstances need to change so that the church can be more godly so that the church can be more dignified. That word quiet there is the same word used in 1 Peter 3, chapter, uh, verse 4, when it speaks about wives submitting to their own husbands with a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Verse 1 says, even if their husbands are unbelieving, even if some do not obey the word. In other words, even if the circumstances are not great, even if the circumstances are not pleasing, this is something that God does in us. So those three things following, the quiet life, the godly life, the dignified life, is not because of circumstances. It's something that God does in the hearts of those praying. And here's kind of the practical example. It's that either we are going to pray for all people, and whenever we gather with other people, the result will be a quietness, a peacefulness, a godliness, and a dignified life, or... We will not pray for all people, not for kings and queens who are in high positions, but when we gather with other people, we're stirring up people. The result is not a quiet life. It's not godly, it's not dignified. In fact, there's jealousy, there's envy, there is fear, there's negativity. Because where we go and where we speak about stuff, negativity and fear abounds, confusion abounds. Why? Because we're not praying to God for the good of people, we are speaking about people that causes chaos. Are you with me? 
The three that follow is the work that God does in us. And to say that God needs to change circumstances so that we can be more godly would be to stand against the truth of the gospel. When we know who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, that produces this attitude in us. And we can live that out in the midst of persecution, in the midst of chaos. And scripture says things will get a little worse. A little might be a bit of a downplay. It's going to get wild. But pray for those people, for their good, and so that God can do a work in us as well. The work is in here, and it's also out there. And now Paul is going to show us also the purpose mainly of these prayers, not just for circumstances to change, but for the salvation of many. And again, the work is in here and out there. It's the bird again. We first have to do this. We had it in the morning service as well. Here is a bird. If the bird distracts you, sorry. But here is the bird. We had it in the morning service as well, and I saw a couple of people kind of saw the bird as we were reading through the passage. And I said, sorry if the bird distracts you, there's nothing that I can do about it. And when I said that, everybody looked, where is the bird? And that caused more confusion. So there's the bird. Does everybody see the bird? Okay. Back to the passage. I kind of confused myself now here. Yes, but what Paul is trying to say is that the purpose is for salvation. And again, we need to note that this will take a work in here and out there. Let's look at this. Verse 3 and verse 4. It says, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Beautiful. And that verse 3, before God gives us a reason for something, and we need to take note of this, in general, when it comes to specific things, before there's a reason for doing things, before we ask, but why do we need to pray for all people? Lord, why do we need to pray for kings? This is the first reason, and if it's the only reason, it's a brilliant reason. It's the only reason we need. It is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Done. Then we will do it. Why? Because he's our Savior, the God who saved us, the God who forgave us, the God who had mercy on us, the God that raised us from the dead and will be coming back for us one day. That God says this is good and it pleases him. Therefore, we will do it. Amen. And I'm not saying that God doesn't give us the reason for doing certain things. He does, a lot of the times. But many times we can't figure out the reason and the scripture says we don't have to. If we know it's good and pleasing to God our Savior, we do it. Amen. And it's very important that we remember this in light of the scriptures to come. God is going to address specific people in specific circumstances and he's going to tell the men certain things that we struggle to hear. And we are also going to worry, but why does it need to work that way? Why do I need to do that? Why is that qualification necessary for someone to do that? And if it is pleasing and good in the sight of God our Savior, that settles it. Amen. And he's going to tell the woman certain things that will be difficult to hear. But why shouldn't we and why can't we and why this? But why does that mean if it is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, that settles it. Amen. I'm not saying we shouldn't ask for the reason, but even if we cannot figure out the reason, this kind of is the foundation of it. If it's good and it pleases God, it's good. We do that as a church. We obey. Amen. And how would we know if it's good and pleasing in the sight of God? If he says so. If his word says so. He says pray for kings and all in high positions. Therefore it is good and pleasing in the sight of God. Therefore we do it. He still gives us a reason and he shows us what the outcome should be and for that we are thankful. But even if it wasn't there, Lord we obey. As Alistair Begg says, this is the 
main measurement that we should measure all of church life to. If you want to do something in the church or if you want to act a certain way in the church, we ask this question, is it good and is it pleasing in the sight of God our Savior? And if it is, then we do it. Amen? And if it's not, we don't. It's as simple as that. And we know it is if he says so. And then he says, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And the first thing we see is this, this praying for people is not a change of circumstances, but it's a salvation for all. That's the purpose. Very important that we understand this as well. Social reform and things around us. It doesn't happen if a lot of people vote for the rules to change. Because you may not steal, steal some people steal. You may not murder, still some people murder. The problem is not in the rules of the nation, but in the hearts of men. And change will come about heart for heart as we bend the knee before our King in heaven. Amen? And that is true for all people. It's not just for circumstances to change, but it's for the salvation of all people. And secondly, we see that these two things, a knowledge of the truth and salvation, is not two separate things. It's the same thing. Paul is not saying he desires all people to be saved and then later to come to a knowledge of the truth. No, and, this goes together, and come to a knowledge of the truth. There is no salvation without a knowledge of the truth. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We need to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus did in order for us to be saved. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. People need to know this. This needs to be proclaimed. So also what this cannot mean is that we are as a church supposed to pray hard and if we just pray hard and long enough, people will automatically just burst into salvation wherever they are. No, that's not going to work that way. Yes, God appears to people in dreams and visions and he like reveals the gospel to them in that way. But just because he does that doesn't mean we can now sit by passively. And say, yes, we, we're glad God started with this dreams and visions thing because now we can just sit and pray takes that confrontational aspect out of it, which is nice. No, that's not what it says. It comes through a knowledge of the truth. And so this prayer for people needs to do a work in here and out there. In other words, it should lead to a receptiveness to those who hear, but a willingness in those who need to preach. Are you with me? If God says, pray for all people, it's in light of chapter one, wage the good warfare, proclaim and defend the truth of the gospel. But where this starts is through prayer to prepare the soil so that when we sow the seed, there's a receptiveness to that. And there's a willingness in the hearts of those who need to preach the gospel so that they can go and proclaim it. Amen? It's the same that Paul says here in verses 5 and 6. Here he gives the context of this truth. This is the truth by which all men are saved. This is it. There's no, nothing else. There's no other way of salvation. There's no other name given. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. There is one God. doesn't matter the nation. God didn't manifest himself in a lot of different ways to different people in different times and contexts and cultures so that they can understand it. No, there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and man. And not only does it say that there is someone that will go between, it says there is someone that needs to go between. We cannot approach this holy God. Our best works are as filthy rags before him. Sinful men cannot approach a holy God. We have a problem. There needs to be someone to bridge the gap. And that needs to be part of the gospel that we proclaim. Through works of the law, no one will be saved. But through 
the one man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And that doesn't mean that all men are saved. It means that salvation is available to all. And he's saying to this church of exclusivists, just like the gospel is available to you, so it is available for them. And just like it's necessary for them, so it was necessary for you. It is necessary for you, but the gospel needs to be proclaimed. This praying for all people needs to lead us out. Jesus did the same thing in Matthew 9. Verse 36 to 38, well-known passage of Scripture. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And what does Jesus do? What's the cure? What's the, what's the outflow supposed to be? He turns to his disciples and says, pray. First of all then, pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out laborers into his field. And who are the first people that sent out? Those who prayed. Why? Because prayer refines the heart and always compels the heart to action. It's not just a work out there, but it's a, a work in here that God is after. Romans 10 from verse 13 to 15, it says, Everyone that calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call upon him in whom they do not believe? And how will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear unless someone preaches? This doesn't mean we sit passively in a corner and pray for the people out there. No, but this will do a work in us that leads us to go out and proclaim the gospel where we are. And I believe that and we see that in Scripture that the reason why the church in general struggles with evangelism is because there's a lack of prayer for all men. Amen? Because there's a lack of prayer, there's a lack of effort, lack of love. We need to put first things first. The answer to the magnitude of the harvest is not to go but to pray. Why? Because when God works in the heart, the going is sustained because God did eternal work in here. It's not we go out very excited in the first persecution or the first setback we encountered. Oh no, we give up on this thing. No, we endure. We fight the good fight. We wage the good warfare. Holding to faith and a good conscience because we are rooted in prayer. Amen. And also, just lastly, this testimony given at the proper time saying two things. Scripture says that at the right time, God sent forth his son. At just the right time, God sent Jesus. Perfect time. He knows what he's doing. That's what this means. This doesn't mean that we should now wait for the opportune time. Because sometimes when it comes to neglecting a good conscience, like we said, all of us know that we should defend and stand for the truth. We know when that thing at work comes or at family comes and people are speaking about a certain thing and we get this uncomfortable feeling, hey, this is my cue. Here I need to say something. Here I need to stand for truth. And the more we reject that, the more we reject a good conscience and the easier it will become. And we use stuff like this, but wait, this wasn't the right moment. I don't know if you ever felt like that. It's not the opportune time. Because we know the right time is when someone comes in and they glow in the stomach and in the forehead. Ne? Then they're receptive to the truth. That's just a joke, by the way. There's no perfect time. There's no exact time. Yes, God will lead us in specific times and specific instances to say to specific people specific things. Yes, by all means. But 2 Corinthians 6, from verse 1 to 2, Paul writes and he says, As fellow workers of God, we implore you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he said, In a favorable time I've listened to you. In a day of salvation I've saved you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, this is the day of salvation. From the time that Jesus died and was raised again until the time that he's coming back, this will be the time of salvation. This is the proper time to, pro to proclaim the gospel wherever we go. Amen? There will be no better time than now. 
to proclaim the gospel wherever you go. This is the favorable time. This is the day of salvation. And as we love other people well by praying for all people, God prepares the ground there. He changes circumstances there, but he refines the heart in here. And he does a work in here, giving us a willingness to go out and proclaim the gospel. Amen. I want to end off us by these couple of points that I want us to discuss with one another. And again, I know it is uncomfortable for some to discuss these things. Sorry for that, but it is good. Because we live in an age where information is just everywhere. And if we don't sit and discuss and pray through and see how we can apply, it just enters the one year out the other year. Because there's just so much stuff that we constantly hear and are faced with. And also, we many times avoid the uncomfortable truth of Scripture. So we need that opportunities where we turn to one another and discuss this, even if it's uncomfortable. I mean, so sorry if it's uncomfortable, but we have to do it's good. And these are the discussion points that we can discuss and pray with one another for. First of all, how is it going with my prayer life? How's it going? What am I praying for? How often am I praying for it? How often do I engage with God? Is it the vibrant prayer life and what is the content of that prayer life? And again, if you're married, this is something that we need to actually discuss regularly that we fail to do. What are we praying for that we can come alongside one another, pray with one another? Second question, is my time in prayer leading me to live a quiet, godly and dignified life? Is that time in prayer actually changing something in here? Or am I constantly where I going stirring up people, making people negative, bringing confusion, bringing division? Wherever I go, people are unsettled instead of peaceful and quiet. Is it actually doing a work in here? And then three, am I regularly praying for the salvation 